Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Will Graylin is our guest for today. Will is the founder and CEO of OV Loop, and he's the CEO of Indigo Technologies. Will is one of the most accomplished people I've had the chance to interview. He has started about four different companies and acquired three at his current company, OV Loop. Uh, his company LoopPay was sold to Samsung Pay for roughly $250 million uh, around 2015. And Will has deployed that capital into companies that he's working on now, Indigo Technologies and OV Loop. Uh, OV Loop is a universal wallet and commerce messaging platform, uh, building frictionless commerce experiences everywhere. And they have a fascinating story roughly raising $50 million and launching soon through B2B channels. Indigo Technologies is even wilder. Indigo is building a new EV uh, electric vehicle, and they're going to compete by being more efficient, smaller, lighter, lighter weight, and utilizing a robotic wheel technology that was developed out of MIT. So he's running two companies simultaneously, uh, with one of them being a electric vehicle company. So we, we spent the first half talking about Indigo and what it's like to start off building an electric vehicle company. And we talked about OV Loop and what he's doing there as well. I really enjoyed this conversation. If you do too, please like, share, subscribe to Around the Coin and suggest new guests for the future. We really I really appreciate your support in helping the podcast grow. Thank you. And here is Will Graylin. All right, Will, I'm uh, especially excited to talk with you. I've uh, been following you for, for many years and just uh, have a, a complete admiration for the different projects, companies you've built and sold. A few of which that stand out to me was uh, selling, building companies, selling it to Samsung, contributing a lot to Samsung Pay, uh, Loop Pay, Rome Data. You've been in the payments game for a long, long time. Um, through those experiences, you've now transitioned, I would say, or maybe you've kind of opened up your scope of what you're working on to include e electric vehicles. Uh, starting an electric vehicle company. Is your time now split between uh, EV production through um, uh, through Indigo Technologies as well as, are you 50-50 on Indigo and OV Loop or how do you spend your days nowadays? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm roughly 50-50, uh, meaning, you know, 50 hours in uh, OV loop and 50 hours in, in Indigo. And sometimes it varies depending on what's going on. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it, it's definitely a, um, uh, a passion, both on the fintech side, um, after leaving, leaving MIT, um, and finishing up my first startup, um, I got, um, you know, I got involved in, in fintech quite naively. And, uh, and then it's, it's been multiple fintechs since, um, you know, interestingly enough, it's, uh, Elon Musk started at, uh, PayPal as well in fintech and, uh, and then moved on to, to the EV space. But, um, I have been in, interested in EVs for a very long time as well. And ever since, uh, uh, in fact, specifically EVs and, um, and active suspension, which, uh, one of my professors, Dr. Amar Bose, um, back in the late nineties had built an active suspension system and I was taking his class and he showed me a, uh, a Bose active suspension solution that never really, um, took off the mass market because it was too expensive and, and too heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, um, uh, when I got involved in, in, uh, getting to know another professor, Professor Ian Hunter that had built a robotic wheel technology, uh, that really caught my attention. I had invested in multiple EV companies, um, and I was uh, early adopters to EV in the first place. So, um, ended up investing in in Indigo, and uh, was asked a couple years ago uh, while I was sitting on the board to um, um, to look at commercializing, you know, the uh, the Indigo technologies uh, into uh, building, you know, building the solution, putting it into the marketplace. So. So both fintech and EV tech now is is very much part of of my daily, um, you know, passion, and uh, so it's exciting. Yeah, and as far as I understand it, the innovation that you're really pushing uh, on the EV side with Indigo Technologies is the wheel. So as as I understand it, there's a robotic wheel uh, construction, and then the vehicles that you're making or plan to be making are going to be super small, lightweight. And because they're smaller, uh, they're in a different class of vehicles that can more easily be ride shared. Is that, am I describing that correctly? Or how do you sort of see the... Yeah, so so somewhat. And um, so from, from the EV tech side... Um, one of the biggest challenges in, in America is that um, when you look at um, when you look at vehicles these days. In fact, there was a Bloomberg article uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about the obesity em- epidemic, um, not in people but in vehicles. And if you look at all the vehicles that um, have um, have come about the last uh, last few decades, uh, they've gotten bigger and bigger. And uh, the waistline uh, was was the reference there. Um, but essentially they have gotten heavier, they've gotten bigger, uh, and the OEMs have been pushing us towards, um, you know, more SUVs, more trucks, regardless of whether we really need the, the SUVs and trucks. And, and, um, and, and because, you know, they really make more money in that direction and the compact cars, low end, they make less money. So many of them are actually being faded out. So unfortunately, when, 
Vehicle manufacturers are starting with a heavy vehicle and utilizing what's called the vehicle architecture. In other words, the chassis. Um, you're starting when you start heavy. That means you need a bigger battery to transport that heavy weight. Uh, and that vehicle architecture really, and it hasn't changed in a long time. Um, and when you have a bigger battery, that itself is the most expensive part. And it's also one of the heaviest parts. So you're adding more weight. That means uh, it is harder and takes longer to charge in, in level two charging infrastructure. That means um, you have range anxiety. <laughs> that means you want an even bigger battery. So everybody's you know competing for range and battery size when the reality is you should be going the other direction. Um, and why should somebody be, be um, you know, vast majority of commuters are, are one person um, driving in the car. And when you talk about Uber and Lyft, uh, 90% of Uber rides are two passengers or less and 75% is one passenger or less. So why are we um, needing a big old car to transport a couple people and for package delivery or food delivery, that's even worse. There's no reason why somebody should be coming to my door, uh, delivering my Chipotle's in a 4,000 pound SUV. It just makes no sense. Um, and if you're going to take all that energy from the, um, you know, from the petrol stations to our home grid, that effectively makes our car a home appliance, right? And every one of our appliances from TVs to washers and dryers, they all have energy star ratings and we're trying to all make them more efficient to take energy off the grid. So why wouldn't a car, shouldn't they be made yeah. uh, energy efficient at the same time? So I what feel like the, uh, oh, sorry, I was going to ask you, uh, why would this not be, what you're saying sounds so logical. I would think that this would be a focus for like Volkswagen, who makes the bug, which is the smallest car I can think of, they come out with the Volkswagen bug mini. Is that on the radar for any large OEMs? Or do you think they're just not thinking about that? So um, one, um, not many of them are thinking about lightweighting vehicles today. Uh, they're all chasing Tesla and, um, you know, Rivian's R1T is 7,200 pounds. And um, so nobody's really thinking about building a 2,000, 2,500-pound car. And what we are doing is we said we have to go for lightweight, more efficient vehicles. Um, but the challenge and paradox with lightweight, more efficient vehicles is that the current vehicle architecture with axles in between the wheels um, and the usable cabin space is above the axle. Um, so that means it's much you know, higher and the passive suspension systems that are used for, for, you know, roughly a hundred plus years. Um, the passive suspension physics basically says that it's very hard to tune when you have a lightweight vehicle with a varying payload, particularly. So they feel like bouncy golf carts and none of us want to give up our comfort, uh, and our ride quality, uh, as much as we love the environment. And just like we don't give up our AC or, you know, our heat in the, <laughs> uh, in the winter, AC right. in the summer. So, so this is where the indigo technologies and robotic wheels actually come in to provide the ability to create a much smaller, lighter weight vehicle that's smoother and roomier than its counterparts 
in conventional vehicle architecture. So that means we can put in each corner a robot that can spin the wheels so that uh, it can provide propulsion, but also be able to have vertical actuation to cancel out the road noise and road bumps and potholes to provide a magic carpet ride experience to give you better ride quality. But guess what? It frees up all that space between the wheels too to give you more usable cabin space to allow you to position the driver in a better uh, environment, the passengers too, so that you can have a smaller outside footprint, but a larger inside roominess with a smooth magic carpet ride. So when you can make a vehicle much lighter, let's say 2,000 pounds versus four, five, 6,000 pounds, now you can have a battery that is much smaller, a 40 kilowatt hour battery rather than an 80, 100, or even 135 kilowatt hour for a for a, a big t- uh, truck, right? Like a Lightning or a, or a R1T. So hmm. that saves money. That's more efficient. That makes it faster to charge. And it makes it more cost effective, not only on the upfront cost, but also on a per mile cost. So I always go back to first principles of um, what are the physics and what are the breakthroughs that allow us to, to rethink the vehicle architecture for the kind of efficient transportation pods that are smoother, roomier, and, and lower cost for our gig economy workforce, for our commuters, and eventually for even the robots that are going to be transporting uh, you know, uh, people and, and packages. I love it. Uh, this is a daunting company to start, right? I, I think the statistics around at least U.S. automakers are that there's only, this is a, a quote Elon mentioned, is that there's only two U.S. automakers who haven't gone bankrupt, and I think it's Ford and Tesla. Uh, and uh, so many things I want to ask you, but on the technology itself, while we're, while we're there, do you view the robotics uh, arm that controls the suspension as being um, better than the spring and dampener, which is the typical way For I think sure. that it's done. So, right, and yeah, so it's 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 a smoother ride, smoother ride, and a roomier ride for the same package. So that means we free up the space in between the wheels that normally where the motor sits and the drive uh, shaft sits and. And um, by freeing up more space on the inside, it allows us to re-architect the, the vehicle. And, and you're right. Um, there really hasn't been a lot of true breakthroughs in vehicle architecture. And this transition to electric and hats off to Elon Musk for what he's, he's done. And I was one of the first uh, buyers in New England area to buy uh, a Tesla Model S. And I've owned four Teslas so far. I was one of the first ones to own a hybrid um, Chevy Volt before the Tesla. You know, I, so I've owned about eight uh, different oh, wow. uh, EVs. And did, uh, you, uh, did you did you try to buy one of the Roadsters? The early no, early no, that's a little extravagant to be honest. Um, but <laughs> I love the Roadster. Don't, don't get me wrong. But uh, but I'm I'm trying to figure out how we can provide solutions that's not you know for the point one percent, but really mm. for everyday people. And in fact, how do we make it and get it accessible by those who can hardly afford used cars today? And that's actually one of the missions for um, what I'm doing at OV Loop, which is um, 
building a super app that um, allows people to be empowered um, by who they are and what they can do and what they can contribute rather than, you know, we don't know you, we don't know your credit. We're not going to lend you money to go buy a, 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 you know, a good vehicle for you to go do your jobs. Why don't we measure you based on, you know, who you are, let you control your own data. And if you're willing to share that data about your driving score, your, your credit score and, and, uh, your work score from, from, um, Uber and, and others, um, that you're able to qualify for more affordable transportation that is good for the environment and good for your pocketbooks. So that's what we're, um, we're aiming to do is to, um, to really transition from what we call the web 2.0 attention economy that we're facing today as a society in uh, the United States to a uh, web 3.0 relationship economy um, where consumers get to own and control and use their data uh, and even monetize their own data in their own private self-custody super wallet um, that actually works everywhere and uh, and let them store just about any kind of credentials and data and and help empower them. So on one hand, we're building that um, that super app platform for consumers. And then on the other hand, um, we know that the point of sale has to be uh, improved upon um, in terms of digital engagement tools so that businesses and brands have um, new options to better engage, support, and reward their customers uh, in this fast-growing digital age that we're in. Hmm. Uh, I want to stick on Indiegogo, not, sorry, Indiegogo, Indigo technology for a minute. Uh, sure. Where are you guys? I saw on LinkedIn, it mentions that the company was founded in 2010. You've been there for a couple of years. Uh, it looks like there's about, what, 30, 50 employees. Is the company externally funded with VCs? Uh, like, give me a sense for the... the yeah, so, along... so the history of the company, uh, it was founded by um, uh, Professor Ian Hunter, um, over 10 years ago, I joined the board about, um, almost five years ago. And, uh, I, and I was uh, one of the investors in their series B and, um, um, and the company had, you know, at that time, you know, roughly about $80 million, uh, already, um, capitalized. And, um, so the company overall now has, uh, raised, more than $95 million. And uh, we're about to um, uh, raise our next um, round of capital. And uh, we have about uh, 30 some odd employees at the moment. Uh, we're based in Boston, Massachusetts, or right outside in, in Woburn, Massachusetts. And I took over the company uh, in uh, beginning of 2020. And it was because our previous strategy wasn't working for being an Intel inside type of uh, um, a solution provider. We're great R&D folks, lots of really smart MIT engineers that, uh, that have been um, uh, building the solution. And what I recognized was that um, the analogy is, is we created the 8086 chip, but 
the PC hadn't been built yet. And no one um, really thought that there was a need for PC. And, and maybe IBM thought that there was 100 PCs that are needed in the world. And we were knocking on IBM's doors before the PCs were built and before the software on top of the PCs, like the Excel spreadsheets, were being targeted for accountants that can make their lives easier. So we were too early to try to be the Intel inside, and we were going to die on the vine if we continue down that path, begging the OEMs to, um, you know, to build PCs when they were building mainframes. So, um, so much like any entrepreneur that, that, um, believes in, in the vision, um, I put my money where my mouth was and, um, um, I recapitalized the company and I hired people that, uh, that really knew what they're doing from the, um, from the auto manufacturing space, from the EV space, and to combine with the team that we had in terms of R&D and to rethink and, and reimagine how we can build a vehicle and focus on the target market segments of rideshare, delivery, fleets that need much more efficient vehicles for a greener environment um, in our urban environments. So um, we... Um, we did our homework. Um, we raised additional capital. We brought on board, um, you know, the former uh, president of Zipcar, uh, director at uh, managing director at, at uh, FM Capital, former um, former uh, CEO of, of Daimler Chrysler Canada, uh, Mark Norman. We brought on board um, uh, Volker Casey, who was the former head of innovation at Audi. Uh, he joined us as our CTO. We brought on board the you know, the former designers uh, from Lucid and Porsche to help us design the vehicle and so on. We just continued to build um, the organization while we build the business model. And we went and validated uh, with the folks like Uber and Amazon and, and uh, you know, executives there and says, is this what you need? And we went to the rideshare guy who's now part of our board of advisors and opened up to all of the gig economy workforce and said, is this what you need? Would this save you money? Would this help you do your jobs better, make your days easier, uh, faster, and um, and put more money in your pocket? And when the answers all came back, you know, we continue to now build the business plan and, and we're on our way to, um, to raise our next round of funding. And we want to do it systematically and efficiently uh, so that, um, you know, we can actually deliver a vehicle. Uh, in the next couple of years. So a lot more work ahead of us, Mike, um, but we're on an exciting journey. Yeah. And when you were pitched by this, I, I presume Ian is somebody who you had been friends with or knew for a while. And he says, hey, Will, I got this technology. We have this uh, capability to build smaller, more efficient, smoother riding cars. What was your process internally? You know, presumably you could spend your time doing a, a thousand different things. You're a smart guy. You've had exits in the past. How do you go about running the calculus to decide whether or not you want to dedicate your life to this? Because I imagine you're signing up for, you know, a minimum of a, what, seven-year journey, 10-year journey. Like building a, a car company is, you can't just build it and flip it in a couple of years. The, the amount of, I would imagine you're thinking about you know, gigafactory level infrastructure uh, at some level, right? You can start small in a smaller warehouse to get out 
early versions, but there's no shortcuts around building automobile, electric automobiles. How do you make that decision? I guess, is it, are you, are you comparing, are you looking at the market carefully and thinking more quantitatively about the chances of the business working? Or do you just say, fuck it, I've been interested in EVs. This is my chance. Let's dive in and do it. So, so I'll, I'll address the second part of your question in terms of, of, um, there, there's a decision-making point, and I'll come back to that, but I want to give you some background on on when Ian first approached me. Um, I'm, I'm very analytical and first principle thinking because being an engineer myself, um, having gone through MIT and, and undergrad, I was, I was engineering as well. But um, And I spent five and a half years as a nuclear submarine officer, as you, as you may know. And when we're out there, um, we had to learn every single part of that billion dollar submarine uh, in order for us to qualify and get our dolphins. So that means I have to run and understand and run the nuclear reactor plant back aft, understand how we generate steam and turbine and generate electricity to generating our own oxygen, scrubbing our own carbon dioxide when we're 75 day out at sea. And um, so I look at things very systemically and holistically, and and very um, scientifically. And when Ian pitched me the uh, and showed me what he was doing, I understood that there is a fantastic opportunity um, and a breakthrough that changes the paradigm of how small and lightweight vehicles can be constructed and. Um, of course, I didn't know everything at the time, and I've learned more over time. And being three years, uh, or, or really two and a half years at that time, um, being involved with, with Ian, I could see the progression of where the company was and the challenges that were in front of us. And mind you, I was already the CEO of Obi Loop at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, roughly two years in and, and after I've served my uh, three year commitment to Samsung, um, I was full fledged uh, CEO of, of OV Loop and um, and continue to be. Um, so at that time, when Ian came to me uh, December of um, of, of 2019, um the decision-making process was was more one of necessity and and a real challenge, which he came to me two weeks before Christmas and, and basically said, hey, Will, uh, remember those investors that were supposed to come in? Uh, well, the money's not showing up. And um, I think the, the existing investors no longer believe in the model and our Intel inside strategy is not working and we're going to have to fold up shop if we don't do something and if there's nobody to come in and save the company. So the company was on the verge of bankruptcy and I had to make a decision. Am I going to step up? And do I really believe in what the technology can do? And, and, you know, it was hard at the time to be very frank because I'm already, I already had a full-time job and I know how hard it is to run a startup company. Um, and, um, 
So we, I had to do some soul searching, but at the same time, I know that there was not much time and that the world would be deprived of this innovation if, um, if, if I didn't step up. So, um, so, uh, so a couple of weeks later, I, I put a proposal, uh, there for the board. We ended up, uh, voting for it. And, um, and, you know, it was one of those times that you either step up or you, you watch, you watch the company, you know, fold and, and you lose this really spark of, of what could be an innovation, uh, remain an invention that doesn't uh, become, um, what it can be. So, uh, so that was hopefully a long, long, but, but accurate way of answering your yeah. question. And how much did you invest at that time? To help I wrote a few million dollar check at the time and I continue to, to write checks, um, mm. to, uh, to make sure that the company can hit its milestones. And so I definitely not only have skin in the game, but, uh, uh, I have, I have flesh in the game and my heart in the game. Wow. So that's, I would even more important. Yeah. And then to layer on you also running another company. Uh, do you view your position in either company as temporary where you're actively looking for someone to step in or do you feel uh, stable running both companies simultaneously? Um, I don't think you can do that effectively um, right now. And I think those should be more organic in that if we find people naturally that is um, going to be able to do a better job for the company at that stage of the company, we should invite that um, individual to, to take, you know, take the role. But for right now, if, if I keep thinking that I can't do the job um, and I'm not the best person for the job, then I shouldn't be in the job. Um, so, so right now I'm running both OB loop and, and Indigo both passionately. And, um, and I have a vision for both companies uh, both companies and, and, and also there's overlap and synergies in certain areas between the two companies, but they are independent companies with independent, there's some overlap in shareholders, uh, for sure. But, um, but they have two different missions that can independently, uh, become a multi-billion dollar, uh, organizations and create a lot of value for society on their own. And, uh, and I think together, uh, there, there are overlaps that help each other, um, and help bring, bring more value to, uh, um, to society as well. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm passionate about both. And, um, and until I find the right folks that can do a better job and, and I, I happily and constantly looking for talent, by the way, and, um, um, I'm not going to abdicate the, the leadership and the vision uh, position until I feel like it's in good stored and that I can turn over the helm to, uh, to the next person that, um, that can do a better job. It sounds like the right way to think about it. Uh, on, um, Indigo technologies, I see a lot on the site and the website, uh, with the CAD models and the displays and the convincing argument that this, this business model is the right one. Is there a facility now where there's being, uh, prototypes created or has there been full working prototypes or where's the actual 
a stage of the hardware at, at this point? And where do you see it going in, say, the next six months, 12 months, short term? Yeah, so we have developed the propulsion suspension system, what we call the uh, robotic powertrain. And uh, so the robotic wheels is on the robotic powertrain, and um, we're, in fact, having it um, having it in our, our labs right here. And we have a Volkswagen Beetle, 1971 Volkswagen Beetle, that's sitting on top of that uh, robotic powertrain. And... Um, so, so that's, that's uh, terrific to validate and prove out our technology. Um, but for the flow and then the flow plus, we have a roadmap for that. Uh, our designers are currently working on the, uh, the seating buck and the, and the uh, model itself. We're working then towards later on this year, our, um, our show cars that we're going to be demonstrating, um, by, uh, by late this year. And then next year, followed by five uh, working prototypes that uh, we'll, we'll be using for, uh, for feedback and, and for demonstration. And then followed by, uh, towards the end of next year, a uh, hundred of those uh, vehicles that we're going to use, many of them for crash testing and homologation. And, uh, and then the SOP uh, starts from there. Of course, we're raising capital at the same time, so we have a next round of capital that we're uh, in discussions with various um, financial as well as strategic investors that are very excited about what we're doing. Um, and then, of course, uh, we're always looking at, uh, you know, what are the next way of uh, raising even more capital so that we can get ourselves to tooling and SOP, which is startup production. And so most likely it's going to be late 2024. Say that again? Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Do you see the manufacturing being done in Boston, close to where the engineering headquarters is, or do you see it being done uh, more in a rural rural area for economic reasons in America or overseas? Yeah, our our goal is the first manufacturing is, is going to be done in America. Uh, we have partners that we're currently talking to um, in Detroit, and um, and and really the. Uh, um, the manufacturers that already have uh, plants, people, and processes. So uh, we're in discussions with folks that are good at what they do, which is uh, putting together um, vehicles. And we do what we're good at, which is the propulsion suspension system and the design and the market product market fit. Um, because when you introduce something brand new like this, um, you don't have to be the vehicle manufacturer to um, to be able to deliver something as long as you hit the right product market fit. And I'll give you the example. I, I worked for Samsung, which is a fantastic, uh, you know, electronics uh, manufacturer. And when you look at all the cell phones before, the Nokias, the Motorola's, the Siemens, right? And all of these companies, they were manufacturing phones themselves. And anybody who wants to get into the phone business would have to uh, put up the capital, put up the factories and, and, uh, and do all of that. And Samsung was one of them. But what happened in 2006 and 2007, as we led up to the introduction of the iPhone, was that Apple made a conscious decision that they're not going to manufacture and that somebody like a Foxconn can actually do it for them. And their job is product market fit. 
And if they can do that right and create the right product with the right demand, there are plenty of factories and people and processes that can fill that demand. And But if you don't have it and you have small volume, you don't have the, the right mar- product market fit, then it's very expensive to build a vehicle and competing head-to-head you know, with everybody in these market segments, um, competing against Teslas and, and all of them. That's not where we're competing. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're actually trying to open up a whole new class of vehicles. And if we can create the right, um, uh, right product with the right product market fit, there are plenty of people that can help us produce that at volume with quality. And uh, there are lots of factories that, um, um, that are opening up that doesn't yeah, have enough yeah. domain. And I, w- I would also assume that it's it's going to be a slightly easier manufacturing process because your material is going to be smaller and lighter. Uh, whereas, you know, when I look at the Tesla manufacturing facility, they're large cars. There's large machines that move those cars, and presumably those machines are more expensive and um, maybe more difficult to operate. D- do you see a similar kind of production line? I think Tesla emphasizes or maybe just Elon in his interviews that the 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 orders of magnitude it's orders of magnitude more difficult to produce in a production line than it is to make a prototype and that the most challenging aspects of Tesla were and are the battery uh construction itself and and then they're working on self-driving but you don't need self-driving to have early versions of an EV do you see the batteries as being a major source of investment uh, in the short term, long term? I mean, are there now battery companies that you can just contract with and put in there as third parties? So, number one, he's absolutely right that prototypes are a lot easier to build than uh, full-scale manufacturing. And um, and at the same time... Um, there are a lot of expertise in manufacturing by um, by people that have done it and have done it well. Um, and you would have to go through production hell, which he had. And, you know, Rivian's going through their own production hell right now um, by, you know, deciding to invest in their own factories, you know, build up their own teams, uh, build up their own expertise and and going through all of that process. And, and whether we bring it to, when we bring it to, uh, partners that have that kind of experience in building, uh, vehicles, um, certainly we hope to reduce some of that risk. Um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we know that there is a process in building it. But by us going to people that are very good at what they do, uh, and maintaining a, um, an asset light model, the key is the level of expertise and knowing what we're good at and what other people are good at and letting them do what they are best at. Now, when it comes to the battery itself, um, Tesla was uh, definitely um, innovative in, in putting out the 18650 cells in such a way that, you know, they created the packs and they formed the relationship to get the supply chain and they continue to innovate to go to 2170s and now, you know, towards 4680s. And they're also using LFP cells, um, you know, by other manufacturing, uh, partners and suppliers like CATL and, and, uh, potentially BYD. 
while they're doing all of that, the entire industry is moving in that direction. And and we're going to ride on the coattails of those innovations that have come before us. So we will be working with the cell suppliers um, the same way as other EV manufacturers. And we certainly are looking for the continuous innovations that are happening uh, on uh, on battery production. So that, I think, is a... You know, it's a playing field that continues to, to shake out, but that's not where our innovation is. Our innovation is really in the vehicle architecture and the propulsion uh, suspension system, which is this new architecture, new uh, new powertrain. And I think that's where we differentiate. And if we can create vehicles that are desirable and affordable and leverage the latest in battery technologies and whoever has the right type of demand, um, will end up getting the kind of supply um, because all the suppliers are also saying, where's the demand going? Are we going to go to another, yet another Tesla competitor and hoping that they would win and maybe they won't make the volume or are we going to to bet on, you know, this class or that class? So we're going to have to win on our own merits uh, on, um, on creating that demand. But once we do, um, we're certainly going to be utilizing um, all that the supply chain uh, in the battery supply side that has to offer. And make no mistake, um, building a vehicle is still hard uh, as we innovate. Um, but uh, but we do know that there are lots of experts that can help us get there. Um, our goal is to to you know design it for the right people and really focus on their experience and create the right platform that's affordable for them. Yeah, yeah. I know that uh, Elon has said that one thing that f- factored into their decision to keep manufacturing, not only in the U.S., but right down the street from the engineering headquarters, uh, is that there's there's this, what you're referring to in manufacturing hell, uh, as I understand it, is often just a series of really small engineering changes or design changes, like a a valve might be slightly too large and difficult to produce and causes issues. And oftentimes the engineers who design the valve or whatever, whatever piece it is, will go to the manufacturing floor, see the issue and then tweak the design. So the ability to get that feedback uh, provides value. It speeds up the process of design engineering. And it's more expensive to have the, the plant right down the street. But then you know, it's more expensive than having it overseas, but then you also gain on lowering costs of like traveling, sending the engineers out, the longer feedback loop of design. So I, I found that kind of an interesting, to me, it wasn't intuitive that it really helps to have the engineers on the manufacturing floor. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there are a lot of engineers that have to, to be at work. And it's really the collaboration and the bridge. Um, you know, you don't want all your engineers on the floor. You want your engineers to be focused. But the guys right. who who can um, who can translate um, what the issues are um, that needs to get fixed that's happening on the floor that allows you to go back and say, "Hey, um, we need to make this change in order for us." to uh to to get it back out there and fix this problem uh that fast feedback loop i think is applies for all engineering practices and uh yeah the closer you are to that information um the faster you can make decisions 
Yeah. Uh, I love it. I love it, man. I, I want to shift gears a little bit to learn more about OV Loop because I know you're very passionate about that project or that company as well. Um, can, can you give, I have a description here, but I'd love to hear it from you on what the, I would love to hear both the vision long-term and then is that different from where it started? Was the initial impetus for the the business different than where it is now? Um, the direction I think is, is still pointed in the, in the right way. Um, the permutation of how we're getting there, uh, you, you have kind of a North star of where you want to go to, but the, the road is not always straight and easy. So as, uh, as we navigate, um, you know, I've been watching, in fact, um, my first startup going into uh, the fintech space back in 2002, after I sold my uh, uh, my first startup out of, of uh, MIT, which was a security software company called EntitleNet, um, deep in access management and, and uh, you know web based security. What I recognized was that you know uh, a friend of mine had a technology that allow us allowed us to to bypass the wall garden of of the cell phones at that time, which was through the SIM card. So we were able to, to spoof the SIM card uh, command set with what's called a virtual SIM and allowed us to put an application you know, on a, um, on a, uh, a SIM card-based phone. And I thought I was going to build a mobile wallet for people to be able to... A SIM card is just a smart card, right? So we thought we were going to build a, a mobile wallet with a smart card reader so that you could make a, you know, a remote transaction like an airline ticket uh, using a card present, you know, transaction via the phone through an app as a mobile wallet. Well, that was very naive because I didn't fully understand and appreciate the payment space is really a two-sided platform, which is you have a chicken and the egg problem in that unless you have a lot of consumers already using something, merchants aren't going to care about adopting your new solution. And unless you have a lot of merchants accepting this payment solution, consumers are not going to care about wanting to adopt that solution. So you're stuck in the middle. So very quickly, I learned that lesson within uh, about four or five months. And we said, we got to pivot or else we're going to die. So we pivoted from a you know mobile wallet at that time on a you know, SIM-based cell phone to a um, to a mobile point of sale, we just you know took a Siemens phone. We changed back out, added a you know a, a MagStripe reader, a smart card reader, an infrared to a printer, a smart pin pad, and this is Square before Square, basically. Um, and uh, we made a mobile point of sale, and then we figured out how to distribute it you know, into the. Um, um, you know, the acquirers at the time and, and uh, focused on, you know, that group of mobile merchants that needed that kind of solution, which compared to the other mobile point of sale, which was a big old brick, you know, if you remember the near it 8,000, um, it was, uh, it was cheaper, it was smaller, it was cooler. And uh, so that company eventually got acquired by Verifone and smartphones came along and, and we said, hey, um, we don't need a separate device. So why not? Uh, do a little, uh, you know, a plug into a, a reader, right? So we ended up making these devices and the software behind it, and we white labeled it for everybody from uh, Intuit to PayPal to you know, Pay Anywhere. We became the largest white label solution. And, th 
And that was a new company that was, was that Rome? Yeah, that, was late, that was later the, called Rome Data. Uh, so Waze Systems was sold to Verifone, then Rome Data uh, eventually was sold to um, um, Ingenico. And basically at that time, 2012, 10 years after I, I started in the fintech space, there was still no mobile wallet. There's still no Apple Pay and, and all of those. And that was because NFC, even though it was promised for you know, a decade before, um, I finally recognized how hard it was to change the merchant point of sale, right? Uh, even with EMV mandate, it was just hard. So um, so my co-founder and I, George Walner, who was the founder of Hypercom, um, he says, well, what if we can spoof the Magstripe to receive a magnetic signal contactlessly without having to swipe? And I said, if you can make that work, you know, let's let's uh, build our own mobile wallet and then figure out how we're going to embed it into uh, phones. And and uh, and then he uh, sure enough actually made it work. And we um, I immediately you know, stopped what I was uh, was doing. I remember very clearly I was getting a, a phone call while I was on skiing vacation with my family up, up in New Hampshire. And, um, and he says, hey, I got the first transmission through, Will. I said, awesome. I'm going to drop what I'm doing. I started writing patents, uh, business plans with them. And, and we ended up uh, you know, building our own mobile wallet because uh, we knew that nobody was going to believe us or you know, adopt what we're doing unless we show it to them. And we built Lupe. Lupe became the number one rated uh, consumer reports wallet because we were accepted at many more places than, than everything else that was out there. And that included Apple Pay and Google Pay and, and uh, SoftCard, which was the three major carriers. And it, Lupe was wallets. a was it a mobile app? So I would download Lupe like Venmo yep. and I would send money back, back and forth. And that was around 2014, 15? That was around 2013, 2014. So in 20, 2014, um, we got rated the the number one mobile wallet, even though um, Apple Pay, Google Pay, and um, SoftCard um, was was all the three major wallets. So, of course, Samsung saw what we were doing. We were in the process of licensing technology to Samsung and LG and others. And um, Samsung saw, you know, Apple doing Apple Pay. So they decided to offer uh, to acquire us and uh, have us help them launch Samsung Pay. So that was a fun journey. Um, and uh, so we, we launched Samsung Pay. I was the global code GM. And uh, we embedded our MST technology into, you know, every... Um, Galaxy smartphone from S6 forward. And then, of course, some of the Galaxy watches uh, as well. Um, but unfortunately, you know, if you think about what Apple, Samsung, and Google are all doing, and they are doing wallets that are tied really to an operating system or to a phone. And I always felt that if you really want a wallet, you should be looking at what WeChat, WeChat Pay is doing in China or Alipay is doing where it's ubiquitous and universal. In other words, it should work for any phone. It should work uh, at any point of sale. And, and furthermore, um, 
the last few years, as you can see, the, the trend towards Web3 and self-custody wallets and, and blockchain-era cryptography that allows consumers to own their own data, why can't you have a wallet that you own your own data into? And you get your own lock and key rather than the private company that locks all of our data into one database with one single encryption key. So that if anybody gets a hold of that key, they have the keys to the kingdom, whether it is a rogue employee or whether it is a hacker. Um, and, you know, no wonder we don't have a digital wallet in the United States today that uh, is analogous to our physical wallet in that, uh, number one, our physical wallet, who owns it? We, we control it. We put all of our credentials in one place. We can use it everywhere. But in our digital wallet, whether it's a web one digital wallet like a PayPal, where it's my card on file in there and you know, they, they own that data, um, or whether it's a web two wallet like you know, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, and Google Pay, um, that database is owned by them. And um, so I'm certainly not going to put all of my sensitive information into somebody else's database that they control with one key. That would be, you know, that would be trusting a lot. So we're using the latest blockchain era cryptography to, which is BIP32, um, to give everybody a self-derived lock and key. And also a secret recovery phrase using BIP39. Uh, this is the Bitcoin protocol that, that, uh, that are now, you know, been vetted by the community. And then we basically give people control of their own data and then facilitate it by letting them download an application so that they can put anything that they want, whether it's their payment cards, their bank accounts, their ID, their membership, their passport, their passwords, their crypto keys, NFTs. We don't care what you put. It's your private crypto vault that you own. And then let you use it just about everywhere, right? And then we say, okay, what can we do to let you use that um, that data um, at the point of sale? So we acquired a company called uh, Simply Tap um, that started around the same time as Lupe and, uh, and friends that basically uh, invented host card emulation. And that patent um, actually became granted in 2019, 2020, we acquired the company in 2018. And uh, now it's, you know, um, the patent has, has been granted in, in uh, five different countries. It's got three more pending. And um, it means that if you want to tap and pay using a token that you fetch from the cloud, which we know that that's the world, you know, the world is going that way. And even some of the biggest players that you know of is licensing that technology from us in order to do tap and pay. And we're certainly going to do tap and pay utilizing tokenization uh, from the cloud and through our application. So this is what makes us really interesting and unique as a super app and a super wallet is that we not only give self-custody sovereign control to the user, we also give them the ability to utilize the existing point of sale to tap and pay and utilize their tokens in a way that... Um, doesn't require change in the point of sale. So we further, you know, in exchange with, with Samsung, um, 
Um, not only, you know, did we do a deal where, where they licensed the technology of host card emulation and tap and pay there. We also acquired the license from what we sold them with mag- magnetic secure transmission so that we can create a super card, a little device, an accessory that, um, that allows consumers to have a tokenized connected payment device with one time use card numbers. Um, that you can hand to a waiter, you can hand to a bartender, you can hand to your kids to go buy, you know, uh, ice cream, uh, or a hot dog at a game, right? So you, you can now have the, I'm not going to hand my phone over to a waiter that still has their old micros terminals in the back and, um, you know, uh, old NCR terminals out there, right? So they're not coming to the table with us. So what are we going to hand them? Are we going to hand them our, our normal plastic cards and right, risk right. that it's going to get skimmed? And so modern day solutions for modern day problems. And we see that our digital wallet should be um, private, safe, easy, and convenient for uh, for consumers. And then you know help them empower um, their wallet to be able to add additional data like their their credit score, their driving score, and let them volunteer um, those sensitive information so that they can monetize it themselves and get lower cost insurance, lower cost finance, right? And let them um, be empowered as as individuals. But at the same time, we didn't stop there, Mike. We Wait, further I, went I, to say... <laughs> Can I pause you there for a second okay. to make sure I have everything? Yeah. So, uh, and then you can continue on. But OV Loop today is a, it, obviously you've had with Rome Data, Way Systems, and TitleNet, Samsung, it, like it's it's been up, It's you've had a track record of payments. OV Loop is a an app that is not white labeled, but that is used for individual consumers that they would download from uh, the Apple App Store or the the Google Play Store. And the way that they would access that wallet is through a cryptographic key, same way as I would access um, my BitPay wallet or another crypto wallet specifically. And inside of there, I'm picturing something like uh, 1Password or Dashlane, where it's not just, you know, Apple Wallet where I store credit cards. It's you can put many different file formats. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yep. Yep. Okay. And where, where is it now in terms of how many, uh, like how much money is raised or people using it? Can you give me a sense of the attraction on OV loop? So, um, so OV loops raised about $50 million so far. And, um, I've been the majority funder of, of that, uh, capital, um, into the company and, um, and, and we've been putting multiple building blocks and building the foundation because it's not just the application. Um, it's going to be very hard for us to build a solution like the web two world. The web two world is about all, all about, Hey, let me give you this chat application. Let me give you this, uh, function and functionality or, or application and you get it for free. And then let me mine your data and monetize your data. That's the Web2 world. We can't repeat that. Your data belongs to you in this Web3 world. So we're not going to have uh, the capacity to go and, and give 
away all of this free service and and trying to monetize the data that way. So, um, but we also see Web three as a relationship economy where we need to build tools for businesses and empower brands as well as empower the consumer. So the way that we're empowering the brands is that we have built tools, digital engagement tools, for them to be able to have one tap checkout. Mm. One tap support, one tap rewards across all of their channels where today they're having a hard time um, creating a direct consumer relationship and retaining their customers. They're spending wobs of money trying to drive traffic back to their website or back to their call centers in order to convert a sale or an invoice. And unfortunately, with all the friction and all of the... Um, um, you know, all of the, the ways of different channels, different ways of, of um, uh, transacting, I'm still, you know, 15 clicks away, even if I wanted to buy. If I have any questions, I got to go self-navigate to find my own answers or call customer service and wait on the phone call to get that answer. And none of those solutions are very good for me because my conversion rate and abandonment rate is really high. And my conversion rate ends up being, you know, 0.35% of all the money that I'm driving just to the traffic, right? So I'm losing people, but there's no way around it. So what do I do? As a business, we spend even more money, have even you know, on Google, Facebook, and, and all these other places just to have even lower conversion rate while the attention span of the customers are getting worse and worse. How many emails do you get a day that you have to go swipe, swipe, swipe? And um, so this constant attention economy is hurting the merchants and hurting the relationships. So we decided that we wanted to create solutions that empower the brands and allow them to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with their customers through these tools and give them a reward system that actually drive traffic back and actually build a sense of loyalty. So that tool that we've been building, we're about to release next month. And in conjunction with um, the OV Loop, minimum viable application, minimum viable uh, product, right? MVP. And, uh, and we're launching it um, with um, the New England Free Jacks as a sports team. Uh, we have another company called Binatone and Hubble Connected as, as one of our early um, uh, e-commerce retailers. And uh, we're going to be signing up a number of other merchants. And the great thing about our platform is that we can br bring these tools to the uh, brands that are trying to build these relationships and they don't need to have millions of users. In fact, they don't even have to have one user that has OVLoop wallet and OVLoop app yet because when they send out their one tap offers to, uh, to their customers through email, social and across these different channels, it's easier for their merch, uh, for their customers to be able to see the offer if they have any questions, literally one tap and be able to contact customer service, get questions addressed, get to payment. And of course, the first time they don't have a wallet, so they'll still enter their information. But the next time we show them how they can get their personalized, sovereign, self-custody wallet that's not hanging out there. And the next time it's a biometric away and they can get rewarded for uh, utilizing that wallet and utilizing that transaction to get cash back for that uh, merchant on a reward system that not only works 
online, but also works in a physical environment or even within affiliates. So that kind of flexible one-tap rewards, one-tap checkout, one-tap chat for support is what we're bringing to the businesses. And that's what OB Loop is all about. It's closing so the it's, commerce loop for Web3.0. And it sounds like there was a lot of work done. 50 million before launching, that's a big, uh, like, what would you call that? Pre-launch investment? With three acquisitions. Yep. Yeah, that's With that's Three wild. acquisitions. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's, I wouldn't be able to pull this off um, had I not had some previous successes that built off of where we are and, and had some capital to be able to take this chance to do something so bold as uh, right. as what OV Loop is, is embarking upon. Right? So, I mean, this is bold and ambitious as, um, you know, as, as anything to, to look to be the first uh, uh, or one of the U.S. super apps because there's no U.S. super apps today. What's a super app? So that's a bold vision. Super app. What is the super app in my oh, definition? Yeah. 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 So, so my definition of super app is a, a, a solution that actually, um, it's a universal wallet application that allows the consumer to be able to store just about any kind of credentials and data that they can control that works across channels, physical, online, in-app, in-message, across devices, iOS, Android, PCs, and across tender types, whether it's, you know, credit cards, debit cards, buy now, pay later, uh, RTP, and eventually, you know, the different uh, coins that ultimately, you know, make it to the, from the island to the mainland. And, and those are the things that, um, that we see is what a, a super app application uh, starts out as, but then expand into uh, being able to offer better cost financing, better cost insurance, uh, better cost transportation uh, for mobility as a service. And when you look at Asia, WeChat, Alipay, Grab, you know, a lot of those uh, companies that have leapfrogged these existing infrastructure have created their multiple super apps that are in those um, regions, but those are not transportable. It's like the Galapagos Island effect to the U.S., where the U.S. has a very unique um, infrastructure and a very unique ecosystem, uh, both on the POS side and on the you know wallet side, which is today very fragmented. And our goal is to be able to defragment that and um, and to not disintermediate the brands and their customers, but really to intermediate and bridge them and help give them the tools to have more frictionless, fraudless transactions and better relationships between them. So that's our that's our goal, and that's super ambitious. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, amazingly so. It's such a unique position to be in. So it sounds like your your contracts, your partnerships with these large businesses, these large merchants, like I'm uh, picturing Walmart or large grocery stores or that kind of thing, they are your channel to the consumer. And I would imagine you're sitting there thinking, our success depends on the conversion through that B to B to C channel. Right. You, when they send out a million emails, what's that conversion rate going to be to open up a wallet and make that transaction? Exactly. Yeah. Super interesting. And their success is 
their success leads to better long-term value for them and, and more success for the community and more success for us. Um, and ultimately it's about building community that, you know, provides trusted commerce to their customers. So, you know, for example, we're starting out here in Boston next month and, and St. Patty's day with, um, you know, with the first home game of the, the new England free Jacks, which is the professional rugby, uh, team here. And, and we want to help build that community and, and, you know, around the stadium, uh, we want to, you know, build, uh, build some of the local merchants to be able to have a Starbucks like one tap rewards experience, um, to drive traffic and, and, you know, create long-term relationships and loyalty and, um, and to have free jacks have uh, a one tap loyalty solution and have neighboring merchants and create kind of this, this, uh, community loyalty program that, um, um, that builds trust, reduces friction and empowers both the brands and the consumer. Why wouldn't we do that? And then expand that to other professional teams, you know, uh, mm. in each of the major cities, um, and, uh, and then expand that, of course, uh, on the online and web environment as well. So we think that there's an awesome opportunity to, um, to bring this to market. Um, but there's a lot of work ahead of us to, uh, to, yeah. to get that level of, of ubiquity and adoption. And this is why we're looking for partners as well, such as, you know, merchant acquirers and, and people that are already working with the merchants. Why not give them the opportunity to earn stickiness? provide more value to their existing merchants and still keep their merchant account. Right. So that's uh, something that we're, we're definitely working towards as well. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the, the familiarity between what you're doing and uh, a startup. I, I started uh, in 2012 called Flowtab. We built a mobile app where it was an iPad and a phone, the iPad would go behind the bar or restaurant counter. And then the phone is in the, the hands of the consumer that they downloaded. They can place a drink or a food order. It would show up behind the bar. They would make it and then bring it out to the, to the person at the restaurant or bar. And we, we were in San Francisco. So our strategy, similar to you, was like, let's go to the local tavern, the cafes, the restaurants, uh, sign them up for free and then do promotions to get people to come into those establishments. And there's little signs, there's pickup areas. They get a free first drink if they sign up. And so there was, we thought a lot about how do you incentivize people to download an app and place a first order? Because once you break that friction the first time, the second, third, fourth, fifth, 10th, a hundred time is a lot easier. And, um, yeah, yeah, a lot of learning. Sure. And your your <laughs> your company sounds uh you know a lot like uh another portfolio company of mine a very very talented entrepreneur uh named Tim uh who's um who's a founder of GoTab and um mm. yeah they're they're doing awesome right now with uh you know having QR codes that you can scan at the table uh order right on your phone and have you know payment done right on your phone and have the the, the drinks and the food delivered to you. And, um, but, uh, but anytime you bring something new and innovative, um, and some of this has already been done in China, right? Um, but when you bring in it here and you actually making it work with the existing point of sale system, it, that's where the, the innovation and the hard work, um, uh, starts to pay off and you're, you're, 
reducing friction and you're providing value to both the, uh, the brand and, the uh, and the people and their customers. Right. So that's, that's what, uh, is exciting about this next phase, uh, that we're, um, we're in for commerce. Dude, you got a lot in your plate and you've done a lot. I admire your progress and, uh, wish you wild success in both Indigo and OV loop. It's, uh, impressively difficult businesses to be running simultaneously. So keep chopping wood, man. Thank you, Mike. Uh, really appreciate. And you are uh, fairly active on Twitter. You have your own site, uh, Will Graylin, I think it is. Is that right? com. Anything else you want to throw out there? I know you're hiring for Indigo. Um, any other places, people, books you wanted to throw out that were particularly inspiring or useful that for other people? Now I'm I'm continuing to to be expi- be inspired by um, by people that are out there um, doing what they're doing and sharing what they're sharing. And in this day and age, it, what's great about podcasts like yourself and and other mediums um, is that uh, I'm constantly learning from from others and uh, and being inspired. By those who are out there uh, on the front line or in the ring, right? And uh, yeah. so, um, so, so I just um, uh, encourage anybody who who wants to reach out to me, feel free to to ping me on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, we definitely have opportunities at both uh, Indigo Technologies as well as uh, as OV Loop. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the journey ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be difficult and I'm sure it has been difficult, but I just, uh, I, I hope you, I hope you find the success you're looking for. Um, especially with Indigo, it just seems like, God, what an exciting time to be working on an EV company. So if I can help in any way, let me know and, um, keep crushing it, man. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you.